This morning's Old Testament reading is from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. It comes to us from the 34th chapter, beginning verse 11 and continuing through verse 16. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. For thus saith the Lord God, indeed I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good field and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken, straighten what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. Here ends this reading. From God's Holy Word. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the 25th chapter, beginning at verse 15 and continuing through verse 23. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints and for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Just in case you had noticed, this has been a pretty busy week in the life of Old Rehoboth. In addition to the events that have taken place that are exclusive to the life of this congregation, we have also, as residents of this country, observed a national feast day, which though not unique to America, was first invented and observed here. And we know that the first observance was in Virginia and not in Massachusetts, but that's a 
for another day's argument. Thanksgiving has of late been overshadowed, it seems to me, by an extended Christmas retail season. And that's most unfortunate as a day of national focus on all that we already have seems somehow to be of greater value than weeks of wishing for stuff that we don't have but just can't live without. Being given a reason to take a break and to take stock of our many blessings is quite a gift in and of itself and one that doesn't require fancy paper or skills of manual dexterity to wrap it, which I am sorely lacking. So I, for one, am grateful that we are shortly going to be adjourning to the fellowship hall for yet another serving of leftovers from Thanksgiving, not only because I like to eat them, but on account of the manner in which such a ritual can extend my Thanksgiving celebration for at least a little while longer. I'm just not ready to give up on it yet. For Thanksgiving is a time for a collective counting of our blessings. As individual believers, of course, this is a vital part of our faith life. Recalling all the things that God has done for us and then responding with gratitude. This past week, as a people, we have been invited corporately to give thanks for turkey and football and parades and shopping discounts, yes, but more for the source of all those things and so much, much more. Topping that list, even as those responsible for conceiving and implementing the national observance of Thanksgiving were keenly aware is a deserved humility during which we pause to consider that the blessings that we enjoy are gifts, not of our own hands, not of our neighbor's hands, not even of the government's hands, but from the hands of our God. And today, three days after, on Christ the King Sunday, that Humility is again, or perhaps still, on display amongst those who gather in his name. For as we worship the triune God who has been and is and evermore shall be, the least and the greatest of our blessings come from this source, and we acknowledge the authority and power by which he offers us these gifts. We are reminded of this by the Spirit as we hear again these words authored so long ago by the Apostle. As Paul writes to the church at Ephesus here in the first chapter of that letter, he's telling them how thankful he is for them, for their faith, and for the love that they have been evidencing for one another. This imitation of Jesus is heartwarming to the apostle who then goes on to speak of the rewards which come with such faith and love as this. He reminds them of the greatness of God and his power and the authority which he has given to Jesus, establishing him as the head of the church, this body 
of which the Ephesians and we are now a part. This great authority of the risen and reigning Christ is what we particularly observe and celebrate this day on what is referred to on the church calendar as Christ the King Sunday. It is a festival day set aside for the acknowledgement and celebration of the reign of Christ, who indeed rules over all things, seen and unseen in this world and the next. But not only does Paul describe the sort of being who we would be happy to acknowledge as our king among all the possible contenders for that top spot, he's not just the king for us. There's something else that is contained in these verses of Paul's that I'd like to bring to your attention as it could be easily overlooked in the midst of what is really a beautiful piece of prayerful Pauline prose. God's greatness and Christ's rule as king over all things in creation are highlighted and with good reason. But the apostle also makes clear to his brothers and sisters that these things are so that we might be blessed by and through them. The immeasurable greatness of his power is for us, he writes. Christ is endowed with his holy position because the Father saw fit to raise him from the dead, thereby vindicating his sinless life and validating all those claims that he had made about his own messiahship and about the nature and the being and the identity and the will of God. And Christ now reigns from this heavenly throne, not simply over us, though that would have been sufficient, but he does so for us. The kingly power that is, that is his, it's not only for his own benefit, but for that of his royal subjects. Perhaps this is a, a bit more of an abstract principle for those who, with only a few exceptions here, have spent all our lives living in a democracy. But there are times when life under a monarch could seem scripted, whether it be a member of a royal house or a totalitarian state, when ultimate authority and power rest in one man or one woman's hands, there's always the threat of the abuse of power to reward one's cronies or to be used for selfish ambitions. But Christ the King is a different sort of regent. He doesn't play by the rules of this world or her powers and principalities. Rather, because he is the one who has overcome them. Therefore, he is completely altruistic. He perfectly fulfills the role to which he has been called in heaven, as he did on earth, that being one of a servant. During his earthly ministry, Jesus taught with unmatched authority, he performed signs and wonders, as we were reminded 
once again of in this morning's Sunday school viewing of the episode of The Chosen, where Jesus heals one after another after another of all sorts of maladies and infirmities and afflictions. And he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy after Old Testament prophecy, all of which were pointing to his true identity as the Messiah. But what many in his day, including many of the religious leaders of his day, couldn't get their pompous heads around was their own preconceived notions of what the Messiah should look like and how the Messiah should act. If Jesus had been given the Messiah's power to wield, then why wasn't he gathering an army into his service, one that would liberate the people from their oppressors, the Romans who occupied their land? With the benefit of hindsight, we understand that Jesus' power was wielded against an even more dreadful foe than Caesar and his legions. The victory that he won in his death and resurrection was not in a battle with the forces of Rome, but in a battle with the forces that were behind the forces of Rome and behind the forces that oppress all peoples in all places at all times. He did not win a military clash for the Israelites, but rather he has won a cosmic battle for all who believe in his name, who believe that he is who he claimed to be. In this gloriously divine paradox, the one who was murdered by mortals has been gloriously raised from the dead and made head over all things for all time for the church. His sacrifice was for us. And his position of power and authority is also for our benefit. So, practically speaking, what might this mean? One of the most important things I think it means is that if God is for us, who can be against us? With the unrivaled power of Christ on the side of his church, what foe can defeat us? This is, I realize, both a bold and somewhat Pollyanna-sounding statement, given the present state of the church we know, including that of our own denomination. We have been decreasing in terms of congregations and members for decades, and in the last few years, our rate of decay has only accelerated. But with the head of the church, having the name before which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, acknowledging his sovereignty over all things on earth and under the earth and in the heaven above the earth, the body of Christ is in pretty secure hands. It may well be that there is a continued falling away from the church here, but the global body of Christ continues to be strengthened through the ranks of believers in other lands. And what does the kingly reign of Christ mean for us right here at Rehoboth? It may well be 
that things here will look different in the future than they have in the past. And my prayer is that through dedicated investment in a season of prayer and discernment, that we will be granted a vision of what that future should look like in accordance with the will of God. Whatever be the outcome, I am confident that the power of Christ for us will not waver and that he who is faithful will empower his faithful servants to live out this vision for being the church that we have been called and equipped to be, the church of which Christ is the head. Finally, on a Sunday dedicated to recalling and celebrating the kingly office of Christ, I think it is worth recalling that all of his works, both during his time on heaven and from his time on the heavenly throne, they have all been for our benefit. What other leader can we say this about? When we pledge our allegiance to the King of glory, we are swearing fealty to one who has sworn to serve and protect us, not just from the worldly threats that we can perceive, but from those we cannot perceive and that we have no other protection against. The power of Christ is unrivaled, for he alone holds the keys to death and the grave, and he holds them for us. That's the sort of thing we are invited to remember and to celebrate on this great festival day. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.